2: Hello, Renee. Hey, Caitlin. It's the fall. I'm
1: deciding to enjoy the season and take every day as it comes. (laughs) Somewhat successfully. That's code for Caitlin hates this time of the year. I do. I have a really hard time. Even this time of the year where it's beautiful and it's like 75 degrees outside? That's the thing. I'm
2: trying to enjoy it as a beautiful 75 degree day instead of a day that it is slightly colder than the day previous, which means we're inexorably marching towards death. That's how fall <laughs> feels to me in my heart. So I just want to be honest about that because that's what I could grapple with every fall. Sad. And by the time winter gets here, I'm excited because I like skiing. Yeah. But so
1: what the... I don't a, get it then. It's I like... Just,
2: it's the dread of the w- niceness being over. I just wish it went from immediately nice
1: to immediately cold. And then I could like just... It's a transition. I don't like transitions. Oh my God. That's so weird. I'm sorry. I, I love fall. I hate when it goes too cold too soon. I like the seventy five, seventy six, seventy seven, maybe even sixty eight, maybe even <laughs> like that you know, like no, because then I get to wear coats, and I, you know, how many coats I have? You
2: have a, you're a bit of a coat. I horse.
1: am a jacket girl.
2: Yeah, you like a jacket. Yeah, I love which it. Which is ironic
1: for an Australian. And boots, sure, love a boot. I've seen lots of. I've got boots. a pair of your boots that you gave me actually well, that I wear all the time. I'm happy that they're happy with you. Yeah, they're good.
2: Mm. Um, this fall, mm-hmm. uh, is a special moment it is the 50th anniversary of title nine when it started to go into effect this year obviously 1972 50 years on 2022 has been an entire celebration of of title nine um it is the week the 49th as you pointed out anniversary of the battle of the sexes Mm -hmm. and um i got to do something very cool this fall which is actually kind of a nice um sort of like a nice decompressing trip very quickly to i went back to mizzou my my alma mater who was because i think in part because there is a female athletic director the first ever in the sac i should point are out. you serious yeah wow isn't that amazing uh who well, puts, the sec is not known for its diversity no or <laughs> its progressive values mm. and this lady is so badass and had the idea to throw a 50th anniversary of title nine celebration right. invited those of us who had participated as title nine athletes in any sport and have an evening, a weekend gathering, um, in Columbia, Missouri. And the coolest part about it was I got to go eat Booch's burgers and like revisit some scenes of some crimes, but mostly that the people who were really the stars of the show were that class, that first class of women mm. who are now in their like upper sixties early 70s, who were the first people to get scholarships. I met the woman who got the first scholarship to Mizzou. And these
1: were... No, what you did was you met her and then you disparaged her sport (laughs) of golf, actually, because I am very well aware of your uh, social media. And you disparaged. So all the golfers out there... Look, some people say it's a sport. I say it's a game, but it's still really fucking hard. No, 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 it's hard. It's hard. Okay, To be clear, it's very hard. I can't do it. Yeah, so... You know, don't I'm just disparage saying, the golfers out there.
2: This woman who got the first scholarship to Mizzou was, in fact, a golfer. Um, I just think golf would be harder if they had to, like, sprint between the holes. You know, just, like, a little add a little cardiovascular yeah, strain. Yeah, but, you know,
1: have you walked, like, 18 holes of I golf? I, it's tiring, I so, guess have It's tiring. So, you know, okay, we're going but to go golf. Play. For all my golfing fans out there, we're going to go and play 18 holes of golf. Oh and we're going to walk God. it, and Caitlin's going to know that it actually is quite physical to be able to do that. It's not running, and it ain't tennis. But it's still not easy.
2: You know what else it isn't? Pickleball. Can we just briefly talk about this? As we, as we record this episode, apparently Noah Rubin and Andy Roddick are having a Twitter conflagration, each on different sides of What's the pickleball. What's
1: the word? Conflagration? Conflagration. It's like a... Conflict of an integrated kind? Uh, I don't know if it's a portmanteau of other things, but essentially it's a large dumpster
2: fire ah. of an argument. And Andy, prior podcast guest... Uh, beloved uh, visor-wearing Andy, um, Andy, American Roy. hero, is on the right side of this. Short socks, <laughs> short socks. Exactly. You need to see a lot of calf. Uh,
1: he's got some calves. Yeah, for sure. Mm.
2: Uh, he's on the right side of this thing, which is pickleball. If you if you're a pickleball person, just look look
1: yourself in the mirror and. Decide. I thought you were going to say walk into traffic. Oh, So that's very aggressive. You like to say that term. That's why. No, pickleball. Look, okay, I get asked about it all the time. Are you a pickleball fan? I'm like, listen. And I even have some friends of mine who are ex-tennis players. Like, no, seriously, you'll love it. And I'm like, I don't want and care to love it. I'd rather go and play tennis. And frankly, if I wanted to play pickleball, I could just go dinky dink. On the court, yeah. On just the tennis play sport. foam, foam I can just tennis, play ball. Foam tennis yeah, ball. Exactly. I mean, it, it, the thing is, a lot of people love it because they are lazy, and you take two steps. You literally feed the ball in, and you take two steps, and then you can't go into the kitchen. Like, what the fuck kind of sport is that? It's like, just not a. It's not for athletes. And and the thing that ticks me off, and you know how I feel about this, and yes, I'm getting a little bit agitated as we speak. Tennis channel, putting it on tennis oh, channel kills the, me. The, like is beyond killing me like have some creative content on tennis channel that actually has tennis and tennis players and tennis docos and tennis 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 it's a tennis channel like because pickleball might be fun for the social people to play and clearly people love to play it they're old and lazy um
2: i mean listen if it's the choice between sitting on your couch and doing anything? right? Sure, fine. I,
1: and I love that moms play with their daughters. And, don't, and just don't
2: take up, you know, don't colonize the, the tennis, tennis courts, courts. Many of which are public tennis courts. Build your own stuff. Put some lines down in a parking lot. I,
1: fine. All of it. But, my but don't problem put it is, on TV. Caitlin, my problem is that when you put it on TV, it is such a bad watch it's on television. Tragic. It's literally the same point. It's like feed it in. Tick, 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 tick. It's tragic. That's what it sounds like. It's to, a tragic.
2: It's like t- don't. And also the fact that it's all crypto funded, and Michelle Malkin, who's like an extreme right winger, is like the most prominent person funding all this stuff. Like, look at yourself in the mirror and decide if it's a choice between you doing nothing or doing pickleball. I guess as long as you're not displacing tennis, fine. But I don't want to hear about it. I definitely don't want to hear it. And I, will. you can
1: literally do it in your driveway. I will. Freak okay, out. so just do it in your driveway. In your put driveway. a stupid net up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like backyard abandonment. You know, get your kids chalk out. But line, don't put it on my tennis channel. Line your street and play
2: pickleball. Fine. Um, but back to the positives. Oh, yeah. Uh, Title IX
1: is incredibly important. It changed not only... Should we do a hashtag no pickleball instead of hashtag Listen, The wa- the, wa- the war on pickleball begins and ends here.
2: But, uh, I and just... Andy Roddick. And Andy Roddick. Thanks, Andy, for being on the right side of history again. Um, but I do want to say Title IX is incredibly important. Our friends at Sports Illustrated had an incredibly in-depth... Um, thoughtful interview with our friend and queen, Billie Jean King, Mm -hmm. whose participation in the congressional hearings back in 1972 all but guaranteed the passage of this law. And this law, which guarantees equal spending in institutions of higher learning between men and women, obviously has ramifications for sports, but it has ramifications societally that are reverberating to this day. Women who are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. Politicians. Politicians, leaders of industry. There are stats that upwards of 90% of these types of women played high school, and in a lot of cases, college sports. And that is, you meet people who are 75 and above women. They were forced to fundraise, make their own equipment, carve out their own schedules, ask politely for men to share athletic facility spaces with them. And that began to change after the passage of Title IX 50 years ago. And so it really cannot be overstated how seismic this is. Obviously it's personal to me because I went to college because of Title IX. But just hearing Billy talk about it and
1: remembering it. And (laughs) my favorite story, Caitlin, in this is um, when Billy's like, hey, listen guys, I found the money to make it equal prize money. And he's like, what? (laughs) How dare you? Right? How dare you make our lives even easier by finding more money yeah for us to put into women's sports right because women's sports you know uh, and and also you know we talked about this with billy when we had billy on on uh, the podcast and it was along the lines of you know um people are interested in it in in sports but also you know so there's a lot of sports like the women's soccer league or you know um, hockey, uh, women's hockey, football, whatever—they're yeah. very far behind tennis as far as the longevity of the sports. Yep. Um, you know, professional sports, for example. Um, so tennis has, a, you know, a, a bunch of decades on some yeah. of these. You know, WNBA, various different women's sports. So, if you have a, a built-in, um, you have a built-in fan base with tennis that's yeah. been there for so long, and now you know you're getting a slowly getting a buildup of you know, people that follow WNBA or, you know, the Women's Soccer League Mm -hmm. or things like that. So, you know, they pass that on to their kids who pass it on to their kids and then... What do you know? There's a you know a conglomerate conglomerate of women wanting to watch women's soccer yeah. now, you know, or men, or their or their husbands, or whatever. So you've got to do that. That's, it takes a long time to yeah, get to I a think, very popular place. Whereas tennis is, has been there for yeah. so long with the Althea Gibsons back in the day. For know? sure, women were raising
2: trophies over their heads in the spec in the, yeah. the realm of tennis, going back 100. nearly a hundred years. Yeah. Whereas you know the N, the WNBA the women's national soccer team. What even allowed, allowed are, to play. Those sports back then, right? I mean, a woman got kicked out of the Boston Marathon in the 1970s. Like this, this is this is crazy. But it also, in an era where women's rights are
1: getting trampled on than
2: men's, we are not equal citizens of society. It is a reminder to celebrate something that was meaningful and to protect it and to work work forward. So, thanks to our friends at Sports Illustrated, that's Dan Bloom and others
1: who put this really, really great episode together. Um, and, and it was great, Caitlin. I listened to it, and it's really, really informative and easy to listen and easy just to learn. It's and easier to
2: listen to than Pickleball. I can tell you it's that much.
1: tick, tick, tick. <laughs> um, but it is great. And, um, of course, listening to Billy tell any of her stories is yeah. worth 20, 30 minutes of your time. So, Caitlin, good job. Thank you. And... We'll be back. We'll be back, uh, ranging against something. um, We'll be back. Before too long. We'll be back. I'll get a few tennis players up my sleeve.
2: (sighs) All right. Until soon. Thanks, for now.
0: On this episode of Sports Illustrated Weekly, this year marks the 50th anniversary of Title IX, the federal civil rights law that has been instrumental to women's sports. And since Title IX's enactment, you'd be hard-pressed to find any person who's done more for women's athletics than Billie Jean King. In addition to her on-court accomplishments in tennis, King has served as an activist, a businesswoman, and an iconic cultural figure. Today, you'll hear from Billie Jean King after she won SI's Muhammad Ali Legacy Award. And to offer additional context, we have Caitlin Thompson of Racket Magazine here to put Billie Jean King's life and achievements in perspective. I'm your host, John Gonzalez. From Sports Illustrated and iHeartRadio, this is Sports Illustrated Weekly.
2: My name is Caitlin Thompson. I am the co-founder and publisher of Racket, which is a quarterly magazine about tennis. I'm also a former Division I athlete who benefited unbelievably gratefully from generations of women coming before me not least of whom was the tennis legend, Billie Jean King.
3: Tennis is my last sport. I grew up, basketball is my favorite sport, American football, volleyball, baseball. My younger brother played 12 years of professional baseball. And then Susan Williams asked me to play tennis in fifth grade. So we went to her country club and I'm going, well, I'm never gonna get to play tennis because my dad's a firefighter. We don't have that kind of money.
2: she was a kid, having to go into private tennis clubs in Southern California, which were very, very dissimilar from the public Long Beach tennis courts that she grew up on with chain link fences, which were very similar to the ones I played on as a kid. Never been a member
3: of a country club, neither has Billie Jean. Playing at the Los Angeles Tennis Club, a mecca of tennis in Southern California, and I'm I realized everybody wore white shoes, white clothes, you know, play with white balls, and everybody's white. And I said, where's everybody else? Althea Gibson, the first black person ever to win a major in tennis, she was my first shero. I would never thought that coming from the streets of New York, playing paddle tennis, that I would have the opportunity to shake the hand of Queen Elizabeth. I actually got to see her live at the Los Angeles Tennis Club and I looked at her and if you can see it you can be it. And I said that's what number one looks like. I wasn't thinking race or anything. I'm thinking she looks like number one. She's the best in the world. I had this epiphany when I was 12 that I think teed up my whole life. If I can make it number one, I have to be number one, I'm a girl. Nobody will listen if I'm not at least number one. And I thought, maybe, just maybe I can make the world a better place.
1: Now in the third set, Billie Jean serves for match point. Beautiful shot and the Wimbledon
2: title is hers. Mrs. Billie Jean King of America, the new queen of tennis. What we have to sort of remember is Billie Jean was not only a star at the time, but also somebody who was battling the tennis powers that be. Like, I don't think they wanted to start their own tour, Billy and the original Nine and Gladys Hellman. What they wanted was to have equal parity for pay, something approximating, equal promotion, equal TV time, you know, all of these things to be commensurate with the men. The women were proving that they could draw crowds, that they could be incredibly scintillating. You know, they were putting female tennis players on postage stamps. They were creating fashion crazes. And so after decades of sort of being marginalized, seeing women getting gains and the U.S. American Law and Tennis Association, led by Jack Kramer, sought to keep their boots on the necks of women. Like, it was not a breakaway league for nothing. And I think when you look at how often they tried to get men to the table, she had meeting after meeting after meeting with jack kramer with stan smith who also vehemently opposed equality with arthur Ashe, who vehemently opposed equality with the women although later arthur and billy jean sort of made amends and came to an understanding about the ties between civil rights and gender rights but every man who was playing tennis from what i can tell quite threatened by the fact that women were playing alongside them and asking for money and, and earning audiences and they saw it as a zero-sum game i mean that's an attitude that persists to this day
3: Basically, women athletes just were always in the background and basically not, we weren't thought of really that much. And so it's hard on all, a lot, not just on me, but we'd always talk and say, I wish we had the media attention. And so people could hear our stories as well, because every human being has a story. When you look at what it took for Billy to
2: take time out of her touring schedule to sit down with brands and potential sponsors and sell them on the concept Creating a league and personally wrangling people like Robert Kraft, who went on to own the New England Patriots and be one of the most like celebrated sports team owners of all time, or Jeannie and the buses in LA, who started as a world team tennis league holders, getting Virginia Slims to agree to sponsor a tournament, getting other women to get paid a dollar symbolically to leave the tour was a risk. And she was willing to put her money where her mouth was every single time.
3: Following is an exclusive presentation of ABC Sports, live from the Astrodome in Houston, Texas, the tennis battle of the sexes, Billie Jean King versus Bobby Riggs. Any ball you
0: can hit, I can hit harder, I can hit any ball harder than you. No you can't, yes,
1: can. no you can't. Yes,
2: I think she knew it was important because it could galvanize people in a cultural
3: way. I knew it was my moment because we had 90 million people watching. That's never going to happen again, playing a tennis match. And it wasn't about tennis. It was about social change, at least it was to me. And Title IX had just been passed the year before. So uh, I was hoping it would have long-lasting impact. The cultural case needed to be made. And coming into this match against
2: Bobby Riggs, who was you know, sort of a washed up gambler, inveterate, you know, booze hound, smoker, uh, a gambler. He was like a real wild personality.
3: He stands before you for exactly what he is, a charlatan, a faker, the biggest hustler in the contemporary chronicle of sports. Now ancient, a relic of what he was once he could play tennis. Now he resorts to beating women and destroying the whole lib movement in the United States by himself. The
0: ineffable. Bobby Riggs.
3: I'm ready to play, and I'm going to try to win for all the guys around the world who feel as I do, that the male is king, the male is supreme. I've said it over and over again. I still feel that way. Girls play a nice game of tennis for girls. But when they get out there on a court with a man, even a tired old man of 55, they're going to be in big trouble. you know, a lot of
2: folks say like, well, you know, he was maybe two decades older than Billie Jean King. Was this even a fair match? For context, he had beaten Margaret Court, the other sort of luminary of that era. Bobby Riggs beat her handily in what became known as the Mother's Day Massacre. She was somebody who didn't believe in gender parity. She was somebody who didn't believe in racial parity. She famously supported apartheid in South Africa. She is now a anti-gay preacher who supports conversion therapy in Perth. You know, she's like a real gem. But I don't think she, at the time, understood that this wasn't just a way to get paid to play an exhibition match. But in fact, when you put yourself up against a male athlete, you're really competing for all women. Women's suffrage was less than 50 years old when Roe v. Wade hadn't yet been law. And you know, now in a context in which women's like authority over their own bodies is stripped away from us, like it is so hard to forget how much this country hates women. Billie saw in that moment and how she felt like she was going to be playing for not just herself and her own glory and probably the glory of her nascent tennis league, but also every single woman who was being slapped on the ass as a secretary and kept out of a boardroom and the things that we know persist to this day. And then the fact that she went out and played against Bobby Riggs and beat him in the best of five in the battle of the sexes, I think for many women became like a rallying cry.
3: This is going to be the real match. This this is what it's really all about, because Bobby challenged me in the first place. Uh, I didn't want to start an issue, but now that Margaret went ahead and opened the door, did such a miserable job, <laughs> you know, I think that I can beat Bobby. Well, what makes you better. think that I won't be able to psych you out I'm of not Margaret Court. I love pressure. You can try to psych me all you want.
2: And I think she went into this match knowing what was on the line, knowing she would have to not only beat Bobby Riggs, but beat him vehemently. Allow him to spout his male chauvinist nonsense about how women deserve to be in the kitchen and, you know, no little girl is going to come up and show him what's what in his own court, but also play along with it and use every opportunity to pugilistically make the case that this was this cultural moment.
0: The winner of the battle of the sexes, Billie Jean King by scores of 6-4, 6-3, 6-3. I
3: haven't gone through a day yet that someone hasn't brought it up. Not one day. The women, what really happened right after, particularly, is they got very excited. They said they finally have more self-confidence for the first time. They had the courage to speak up for the first time. They asked for a raise. Billy's always understood these cultural moments as
2: being lightning rods for ways to push forward. And I think for that reason, you know, making a film however good or bad, out of it was a logical thing for her to sign on to and be excited about.
1: Keep talking, Bobby. The more nonsense you spell, the worse it's going to be when you lose. Oh, I'm the ladies' number one. I'm the
3: champ. Why would I lose? Because well, dinosaurs can't play tennis.
2: She's very aware of how these stories tend to get buried or rewritten with each successive generation. The victors get to write the history, and if you're not part of that, you're gonna get relegated to the dust band.
3: You know. a, a,
1: right, an
2: a lot of how she transcends sport, activism, culture. Our imagination being on stage with you know elton john who wrote philadelphia freedoms which became a gay anthem for her to celebrate her world team tennis league team called the philadelphia freedoms You know, she just is at the center of gravity in a lot of these moments because she can't help herself. She just can't not be that person, I think. Uh, And I, you know, I think it's for everyone's betterment. One thing that Billy has always understood is the power of not only celebrity and culture, but also the power of money. Money. When she was founding the league, when she was getting her own sponsors, Virginia Slims notably came in as the first sponsor of the WTA tour, it wasn't until they could pay prize money that she felt like it was a real thing that was happening. And not just sort of charity honorarium prize money, but prize money that somewhat approximated the men's. Equal
3: prize money at the US Open in 73. I went out and got the sponsor for that to make up the difference. And then I went and talked to the tournament. I talked to Billy Talbert, the tournament director. I go, by the way, um, we've got the money to make the difference. You don't have to go out and get one more dime of sponsorship. Uh, We will give it to you. And he went, what? Now, I don't think that would have happened or I would have had the understanding or the courage to go do that, to ask if I had learned because of my ownership and being in business in the tennis business at the time. I think it, it made me understand the other side. As soon
2: as she was able to establish the Women's Tennis Association and make sure it was sort of financially sustainable, she turned her attention to soccer and to basketball and to women's softball and all these other sports, because she knew that the power sort of to negotiate was really where they were going to be able to make permanent lasting change and honestly, like create permanent respect in the, in the I think, in the larger sort of cultural context.
3: Athletes just want more. I want more money, I want more of this, I want better hotels, I want this, I want better food, I want, I want, I want, I want. And then I ask him, do you know about the business? They go, no. I think if you want to negotiate, that you need to know all sides, not just your side. The
2: ties to Billie Jean King and Serena Williams, who has the most grand slams of any player, male or woman, who's arguably the most dominant player certainly of her era. She doesn't happen without Venus Williams. And Venus Williams is actually the tie between Billy and Serena because Venus not only won a handful of Grand Slams herself and broke through so that Serena could be not totally burdened with being an activist. Really, Venus was the activist between the two sisters. And she took the playbook right out of Billie Jean's maneuvers.
3: I arrived to the Grand Slams in tennis at the age of 16 years old and found out I wasn't being paid equal. And that's a hard blow for young women. And I don't want other young women to go through this.
2: She went to Wimbledon, which at the time was not giving men and women equal pay. She wrote an op-ed for the Times of London about why denying her equal pay was the wrong thing to do. And then also she went behind the scenes at the All England Lawn and Tennis Club and made a case to the board filled with, as you might guess, old white men, and then went out the next day and beat Lindsay Davenport in what is considered one of the greatest final matches, men or women, of all time.
0: So many people wrote this young lady off, but Venus Williams has bounced back into the winner's circle, the third Wimbledon title.
2: So I think Venus really understood from Billy because they talked and because Billy was very, very keen to get them on board and get them situated in the tennis tour because she knew that her star was fading and she would have to find people to uphold not only her legacy, but the legacy of women's sports and push it forward as they have done. And I think with Billy giving Venus the playbook to be an activist, to go into those rooms, to write the op-eds, then you have Serena who doesn't have the pressure on her to be the first in the space. She's doing it with her sister. She can just honestly play tennis. Part of Billy's legacy. And I think Serena and Venus for sure understand that these women who came before them, much like Title IX did for all these generations of women who came before me, who I meet in boardrooms, who I see, you know, giving speeches on the floors of Congress, like, these are people who literally walked so that we could run and i think when you look at what a seismic figure like billy did with her vision and then continues to do by backing it up and training the next generation of folks then it's sort of clear where folks can pick up the mantle and you know and essentially keep going
3: tennis is a catalyst it was my way. It was my way of reaching others, and and I'd always try to get the other players to think like this, obviously, because they all come from different towns, different villages, different countries. And one thing about tennis, we're really international. And this was an opportunity for them to make their place, you know, whatever they decided to do, to make it better, to improve it, you know, because we're one of the lucky ones. Athletes are one of the lucky ones. It's a res- to me, it's a responsibility.
2: Tennis showed that women from any country in the world, from any background in the world, can compete on equal footing with men. That's still not true in every other sport. Not quite. Tennis is still the highest paying for women. And it's the one, because of Title IX, that women are able to access, if not the most, then then certainly in terms of popularity. Tennis doesn't need to be alone in that. I think, if anything, I would love to see that in every single sport. But because this sport... Like I said, it's got its problems and the all-white tennis clubs and the, you know, lack of sponsorship or equality. You know, there's no domestic violence policy. However, on the plus side, I think it has been inspiring for generations of women. If you look at professional soccer, it's existed for less than the span of my lifetime. The same is true for literally every other women's league. The WNBA didn't exist before I was born. But you know what? Women were playing tennis professionally, winning and hoisting cups over their head when before my parents were born right and so a lot of this has to do with generations and decades of
3: visibility and decades of progress you know we did couldn't get a credit card in 1973 title IX had just been passed in 1972 and everybody thinks it was about sports sports is not even mentioned in title IX. Uh, t- i think it talks about activity or something we got lucky that that was added i think and then you know um i senator birch by is one of my heroes and he and I talked about this, but he had no idea that the effect it was gonna And What it did though, is got rid of the quotas um, for schools, for women. Like if you wanted to go to Harvard to get your medical degree, they only allowed 5% in a classroom before 1972. And you'll notice in the 70s, early 70s, a lot of schools became co-ed because this is about federal money having to be used equally at colleges, high schools, private or public, if you get any federal funds, you had to, for the first time, give it equally to boys and girls. And then you'll see all these schools, if you follow the money, it always happens.
2: Title IX is is typically put into a sports context, specifically, you know, a lot of collegiate athletes, uh, obviously, because they are seen as the biggest beneficiaries of Title IX. I was one of them. I got a tennis scholarship to play at the University of Missouri, where I studied magazine journalism, I got a free education that I probably would not have otherwise been able to afford. What I think a lot of people don't really understand about Title IX, especially who haven't spent a lot of time around female athletes and women in positions of power, is the amount of women in leadership roles that have benefited from this law and it is a direct result of their being, basically them being invested in by American society. If you look at Fortune 500 companies, if you look at the you know, US Congress, like Kristen Gillibrand who played college sports or Uzo Aduba who you know, wins Emmys, but also was a college track athlete paid for by Title IX at Boston College. When, women,
3: when whoever is not getting a fair deal, in this case, women, particularly women of color and live with disabilities, when they get the opportunity, boom, they take advantage of it. And that's why you have this flood through the years, because it took a long time for Title IX to start kicking in. It didn't kick in in the fall of 72, even though it was past June 23, 1972. It really, and it's still not even yet. So it's, we have a long way to go still, but at least you have to get things started. I thought this year would
2: be sort of like a celebratory year to be like, hey, Title IX, like, you know, it's it's 50 years old and look how far we've come. And, you know, all these women that won the Olympic gold medal in 1996 and beyond, and all these women's sports leagues that are now grappling with, and in some cases achieving parity with their male counterparts, like the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team, for example, hockey, basketball, certainly tennis, all of these gender pay issues are resonant throughout sports. It all goes back to that generation of women who was raised and fully funded by Title IX. Like, it's not an accident. This is a natural conclusion of what happens if you empower women and then give them something close to equal footing. It's not quite equal, but something close to equal footing. And now we're having this conversation instead of like a celebratory tone like, oh, we've rolled back and made laws specifically that violate the sanctity of women's ability to choose for themselves what happens with their bodies. And so it sort of, for me, underscores how important it is to codify protections for women and protect them at all costs, because otherwise we have a society that's seemingly pretty intent on on rolling back the rights of women to exist equally in society at every turn. Tennis has sort of been on the right side of history more than it hasn't. Sports is inherently political. Who we let play, who gets onto the field, who we celebrate, who we pay, all matters. It's all choices. It's not an accident. And so I look back at these decades of something approximating equality with Title IX. And I think to myself, like, wow, they had to push so hard for this. We owe it to them to push farther and not let it backslide.
0: Billie Jean King is a tennis hall of famer and the latest recipient of SI's Muhammad Ali Legacy Award. Pay attention.
3: And this is the one thing that Muhammad Ali, Ali and I used to talk about. Pay attention. You never know how another person is going to touch your life, how you're going to touch their life.
0: Caitlin Thompson is the publisher and co-founder of Racket Magazine. Caitlin also recently reviewed Billie Jean King's autobiography, All In, for the New York Times. We'll post a link to that in our show notes. Thanks for listening, and a reminder to please rate and review our show. It helps people find us. Sports Illustrated Weekly is a production of Sports Illustrated and iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. And for more of Sports Illustrated's best stories and podcasts, visit SI.com. This episode of Sports Illustrated Weekly was produced by Jessica Yarmoski, Jordan Rizzieri, and Isaac Lee, who is also our sound engineer. Our senior producers are Dan Bloom and Harry Swartout. Our executive producers are Scott Brody and me, John Gonzalez. Our theme song is by Nolan Schneider. And if you've stuck around this long, we leave you with this.
2: I'm really just a backboard for you to hit against. <laughs> I like that metaphor.